Hello, welcome to JavaScript Jabber. I am JC Hyatt and hosting today's episode. On today's panel, we have Steve Edwards. Hola from the Portland, Oregon area. We have AJ O'Neill. Yo, 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 Kenna from Sunny Provo. And today's guest is Paige Niedringhaus. Want to say hello? Hey, everybody. Paige from Atlanta, Georgia. Tell us a little bit about like your background and, and how you got here. Sure. I've been uh, a developer now for about three years full time. Before that, actually, I was working in digital marketing right after I graduated from college. So I made the switch, joined a coding boot camp, and I was hired right after that to work at Home Depot. And I've been here ever since, first as a software engineer and now as a senior just in the last couple of months. And it's been an incredible journey. I'm so, so glad that I made that switch. Yeah, nice. And congrats on the promotion. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> This episode is sponsored by Tidelift, the enterprise-ready open-source software managed-for-use solution. Tidelift provides commercial support and maintenance for the open-source dependencies you use to build your applications, backed by the project maintainers. Save time, reduce risk, and improve code health. The Tidelift subscription is managed open-source for application development teams. It covers millions of open-source projects across JavaScript, Python, Java, PHP, Ruby, .NET, and more. Your subscription includes security updates, from Tidelift Security Response Team that coordinates patches for new breaking security vulnerabilities and alerts immediately through a private channel so your software supply chain is always secure. Tidelift also verifies license information to enable easy policy enforcement and adds intellectual property indemnification to cover creators and users in case something goes wrong. You always have a 100% up-to-date bill of materials for your dependencies to share with your legal team, customers, and partners. Tidelift ensures the software you rely on keeps working as long as you need it to work. Your managed dependencies are actively maintained and we recruit additional maintainers when required. Tidelift helps you choose the best open source packages from the start and then guides you through the updates to stay on the best releases as new issues arise. Take a seat at the table with the creators behind the software you use. Tidelift's participating maintainers earn more income as their software is used by more subscribers, so they're interested in knowing what you need. Tidelift supports GitHub, GitLab, Bitbucket, and more. They support every cloud platform and other development targets too. The bottom line is you get all the capabilities you expect and require from commercial software, but now from the key open source software you depend on. Check them out at devchat.tv slash Tidelift. So you're here today to talk about Node 12. So um, I know we've, we've got a few kind of uh, bullet points of discussion here, but just as a high level, what are you most excited about from uh, this new release? Well, with Node 12, the, the thing that I am most excited about, and it's actually still behind one of the experimental flags is the ES6 support that they have. Module support is almost here, and it makes things that we take it for granted on the front end of JavaScript just super easy. It's the things like relative URLs, package names, default import exports, all those things that we just do in React, in Vue, in Angular, without even thinking about it, is finally coming to Node. So you won't have to write require. You won't have to write module.export. We're going to be able to use the same syntax across the board from front end to back end. And that's probably the thing that I am I personally am most excited about. Oh, that scares me so much. There's going to be... So, oh. Oh. <laughs> so I, I'm well known for liking JavaScript and not liking ECMAScript and TypeScript. Mm-hmm. <sighs> And I just think require is so simple and straightforward and easy. And these other things, they require so much tooling and so much like hoopla and they never work right. And 
I mean, like basically either you webpack or you just don't develop. And I, I'm from the old school of like, you hit F5 and it works. Hallelujah. So <laughs> I'm actually, I'm actually scared about that change. Cause I think it's just, there's, oh, oh. The, how is it going to work between the two? Cause one of the problems I hear is that like, I've got modules that are meant to work both in the browser and in node and that worked fine for a long time. And then mm-hmm. people started doing this import stuff. And then I start getting bug reports about how my modules are suddenly breaking and somehow this is my fault, you know? So what's going to happen there? Are we going to have to all switch over? Is it going to, am I going to be able to require one of these other things or am I going to have to switch all my stuff to imports or, oh, what's going to happen? Well, at least in the beginning, you won't have to switch everything to import. You may have to change some of your file endings though. They're going to have different file extensions so modules will end with a .mjs uh, ending, and common.js files will be .cjs. So with common.js, you'll still be able to use the require module exports, all that syntax that you're used to. You just may need to change some of the file types so that uh, Node can correctly pick up which type it's supposed to be using. But what about like when I've got, you know something I'm writing and somebody wants to use it, are they not going to be able to use it because it's common JS and they're writing an MJS file? I mean, is this going to be like bifurcation? You're either on one side of the fence or the other? Maybe for a little bit. I'm not exactly sure how they're going to handle that, but I know that they are, you know, trying to make it work for everything. Sorry, I derailed us. Y'all go back to what you're doing there. I'm naysayer <laughs> over here just... Preaching gloom and doom. (laughs) (laughs) So that's one of the things that I'm most excited about with with what's coming in Node 12. But there's some great enhancements that they're doing in other areas as well. They've improved the startup time. So with Node 11, we got about a 60% startup time from worker threads by using the built-in code cache support. But with Node 12, they've managed to speed it up by another 30%. So applications are going to get to users faster. They're going to have better experiences. It's really, you know, pushing the envelope in terms of trying to be as dynamic and quick as possible, which is pretty cool. So does this mean modules are going to load faster or just the node binary is loading faster? The main thread. So the main thread that uses the code cache will be starting up faster so any built-in library that JavaScript is using should be quicker to load in. What is the code cache? This is something that I'm not familiar with. Yeah, I'm unfamiliar with that too. Uh, let me see if I can find a good example of how to describe it. I think it's just how they they cache the built-in libraries that Node comes prepackaged with or any of the libraries that you end up requiring in your Node application. I might have to get back to you on exactly what that is because I didn't do a huge deep dive into it. Okay, I'm just curious because that that's something that I was trying to optimize at one point and I thought, well, maybe if I can cat things together, it'll be faster or da-da-da-da-da, but what ended up seeming to take the most amount of time back when I was trying to optimize it, which was a long time ago, was the VM compile step. And so I, I would be interested to know if we are well, doesn't it start out interpreted now and then switch to JIT? I thought V8 um, introduced I'm, that at some point. 
I am honestly not sure if that is the case or not, but I know that the V8 engine, now that you've mentioned it, is getting a lot of performance improvements as well. They've got new zero-cost stack traces, so without adding extra runtime, you can keep an eye on what's happening in in your error stack. Faster calls with async and await instead of promises. Faster JavaScript parsing. So it's very possible. Can we go a little more detailed on the uh, async await stuff? Because so are we saying that using uh, async functions like is faster than than promises themselves? I am. Yeah, this is something okay. that's really cool, and I uh, I learned about it. I don't know a month or two ago. They the V8 team actually was able to take the async await syntax and make it two micro ticks, and I can't even tell you how quick a, a micro tick is, but it's actually two micro ticks faster than promises. So yeah, they were able to drop, I think there was an extra promise that had to be concatenated on when you were, before when you were using async await, but with the newest release, they've actually been able to drop that to improve the performance speed of it. So me calling async on a some sort of fetch request or something like that is going to be mm-hmm. a couple of micro ticks. I don't, I don't know what a micro tick is either, <laughs> but a couple of micro ticks <laughs> faster than than chaining like dot thins onto a fetch request. It is. It's actually going to be faster. Cool. Why don't they speed up promises? <laughs> <laughs> because ES6 is the way of the future, man. <sighs> He's holding on. He's clinging. <laughs> oh, man. Well, no, it's, that kind of throws my brain for a loop, right? Like, because the way I thought of async await was that it is promises under the hood, and I and I know like it is, but it kind of throws my mind for a loop a little bit to say that it's faster than the thing that it's using under the hood. I don't I don't know how I don't know how to reconcile that. <laughs> yeah, it took me a long time to get on board with async and await. Personally, uh, I grew up using promises and well callbacks and then promises when I saw the great things that they provided, but I liked that then. I liked chaining on, you know, catches and all that error handling. But when one of my coworkers actually suggested that we start using async await, I wanted a better reason than it's ES6 and that's the hot new thing. So when I started looking into it and we found out that Chrome actually does optimize for async await on top of it also being an easier syntax to learn, it being a little bit more like the synchronous type of JavaScript code that we're used to writing for most everything else, I got on board and I haven't really looked back, honestly. <laughs> so here's the question in that transition. This is something I've seen and this is why I don't use them, but I'm, okay. I'm curious to hear your experience. What I've noticed is that people get really confused about async await because, well, I, I mean, We've got this weird, weird, weird time that we live in when it seems like the software world is 90% junior developers because every year Mm -hmm. we're growing like 20, 25%. So within five years, we're now at like nearly 100% junior developers with like, I don't know, 20% being junior mid-level. And then you've got like 1% senior developers now just because the whole world has become software developers. And so mm-hmm. struggle with some of the basics because they're just kind of like thrown into a boot camp and thrown into like, here, copy and paste this, you'll get paid. And then mm-hmm. 
with promises, it's super clear, I think, uh, well, maybe not to everybody, but it seems to be much clearer <laughs> with promises. There's something that's asynchronous that the, the way that the code is working is not, you know, line by line, but it is rather by events. Mm-hmm. But with async await, people lose that context that it's actually events are happening because it, it looks like it's line by line. And then people start to make choices as if it's actually executing line by line and sometimes get themselves into weird situations where just kind of creating something that's convoluted because they think that it's mm-hmm. procedural and they don't know that it's just events. That's really the, aside from not being compatible everywhere, which is becoming less and less of a problem day by day, that those are the two mm-hmm. reasons that I haven't jumped on board is because compatibility and then just developer confusion around what are events versus what's happening in real real with real time that's not exactly the right word but whatever so what what are your thoughts on that i can definitely see where you're coming from i like i said started with callbacks moved to promises held on to promises for quite a while and callbacks were terrible i think we all agree that that was a disaster right is that oh yeah no okay. one, no one wanted to deal with that never never again I like you. I really liked promises. I liked seeing, you know, the dot then and then my response or my failure and, you know, going on with the code. I think what async await, though, eliminates is some of the nested promises because you can get into a promise chain where you're doing pretty much the same thing as callbacks. You have to get data, call, do another call for another promise, fetch more data, do some more things with that data. So you can get nested down pretty deep, whereas with async await, if you know that you're doing a fetch of data from some other endpoint, some API, you can say, here's this asynchronous function that I'm going to call. Here's a constant that I'm setting to data. Here's the await where I actually make that call to that that API that's somewhere out in space. And then once I get that data back, but I don't have to think about you know, the catch. I don't have to think about the error handling. I just know that it will either come back or I'll get some kind of a failed error response and then I can handle that however I want to. So I think it's the onus is on the developer themselves to do that that deeper digging when they are introduced to promises or callbacks or async await to kind of understand what's going on under the hood or for the development team to be able to explain this is how it works. This is what's actually happening on the event loop. You know, this is the call stack. The boot camp that I went to was four months long. And in 16 weeks, we learned all of the non-ES6 stuff because I went to it three years ago at this point. So ES6 was just starting to heat up. So we learned traditional JavaScript from the vanilla beginnings. And I can't even tell you how many times my instructor would reiterate the event loop, the call stack, taking things on and off of it as they were being executed. So yeah, it obscures that. I would agree with async await obscuring it a little bit, but I think if you really want to be a good developer and really go to the next level, you know, that's one of the things that you just have to take the time to reacquaint yourself with, learn more about, you know, read up on, write about, teach somebody else about it, because that will really help solidify and make you understand 
things that you had never clarified before around things like this. And data fetching is one of those things that's just so ubiquitous for pretty much all of our applications. You need to be able to do it and you need to be able to understand how to do it. 100% agreed. So other features that Node 12 has, other than mm-hmm. making things too, and oh man, whenever somebody says the word faster, it's over. Like it, it, <laughs> it's over, whatever it is. If it's faster by one micro tick and a benchmark, like that's the new hotness. Whatever was before is completely erased from history. Absolutely. That's going to be interesting. Um, what else is new? <laughs> There's better security. How about that? You like more secure applications? I do. (laughs) Sometimes. Sometimes, yeah. (laughs) Sometimes it makes our lives easier. So with Node 12, the TLS, which is the transport security layer, which is how Node handles encrypted streams of communication, is upgrading to version 1.3. And I know that this doesn't sound like a major upgrade from 1.2, but the protocol is actually simpler to implement. So it's easier for developers to configure, to write. It's quicker to negotiate sessions between the applications. It provides increased end-user privacy and reduces request time because it's quicker with the actual HTTPS handshake between apps. And, you know, it's less latency for everybody. So that should actually provide some major benefits for everybody as well as making applications more secure from the get-go. So in other words, AJ, it's faster. (laughs) Well, here's the thing with uh, TLS 1.3 and the handshake stuff. I could be slightly off here, but I'm pretty sure this is directly related to HTTP2 because one of the optimizations Google couldn't make was shortening the handshake. Most servers would allow, basically you could skip a step because you knew what the handshake was going to be. You knew you were going to send like, hey, I want A and then you're going to get back. Well, you know, I have B and then you're going to send C. So since you knew what the response B was going to be, you could just rapid fire, send both A and C at the same time. And most Mm -hmm. would accept that. So Google was able to cut out the handshake and reduce it by like 50%. But there would be a couple of strange cases where those requests would get dropped. So like 99%, which is really, really, really low percentage. That means that one out of every hundred, you know, is going to fail. So like 99% Mm -hmm. of web servers, which is nowhere near close enough, would work with it. But a whole whopping huge gigantic 1%, which is a significant portion of the web, wouldn't be able to do it. So I think this upgrade with 1.3 is so that that they can get that handshake down on all servers that support 1.3 and their dreams of HTTP2 will finally be complete when when this gets adopted everywhere. That would be awesome. I did not know about those servers that would actually drop it. So that's that's fantastic to know that that's part of what they might be addressing. They had to drop part of what they were doing. Like they they reversed it. They you know they did one of those things where they tested it out to see like how does this work in the web, and it was unfortunately a, a failure. I'll try to link to that article. I'll try to find it and um, link into the show notes. But yeah, so I'm excited yeah. about 1.3 because it, if I understand correctly, it gets rid of like this tiny little itsy bitsy edge case that caused <laughs> TLS connections to be way slower than they needed to be. Yeah, very cool. Nice. 
okay, so here's something that might be interesting to you because we all encounter bugs and every once in a while we encounter um, max memory size issues where we will stack overflow the browser. There is a way now that we can properly configure default heap limits. So before JavaScript heap size defaulted to the max for, or the, actually the max that was set by V8. So unless you manually configured it otherwise, you would just default to whatever your V8 browser said was the max memory size. So with Node 12, the JavaScript heap size will actually be configured based on available memory. So this ensures that Node doesn't try to use more memory than is available and terminate processes when its memory is exhausted, which is typically what's happened up to this point. So you're going to get a lot less out-of-memory errors than you would have in the past. Oh, nice. And this is just uh, baked in? It is. There is a flag that's called max old space size that you can pass in, which is what we would typically use in a node command line to actually change the memory size available. But this properly configured default is just baked in with Node 12. What are some, like, uh, or what is a common scenario where, like, you may have encountered a, an out-of-memory error in the past? One that I encountered was when I was doing a little project for myself, parsing through census data for the U.S. government. They had given me a file that was, I don't know, like three and a half gigs worth of data. And I was trying to parse through it, pull out, you know, various pieces of data like donor names, uh, numbers, mm -hmm. things like that. And the list that I was constructing in memory was actually too big and caused my, my uh, IDE to crash when I'd try and run it in the terminal. So, you know, something where you're constructing an incredibly large object or array of objects is something that could, could cause this kind of a memory issue in actual production. But now, like, you can just manually specify a, a much bigger size if you're doing a project like that, right? Yeah, and that was what I ended up doing. I found an NPM package called EventStream, and I just increased the memory size that my local terminal was running with. Gotcha. And yeah, that let me parse through the really large files with Node. Yeah, I had to do a really similar project uh, earlier this year with voter data from my state. And uh, mm -hmm. the, the data, just like in your case, was, uh, I think, two or three gigabytes of data. And it was a huge, you know, a whole a whole bunch of CSVs that uh, I was actually yeah. working in Ruby, but it's same same concept of had to split out the CSVs and then like bring in a, a library to kind of give me those over time. Apparently, this is a problem in in lots of languages. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I ended up doing the same kind of thing with Java just to see what the differences were and. I'm not a huge fan of Java. I really like JavaScript a whole lot better, but it was much better equipped to handle and process such large amounts of data in pretty short amounts of time, I've got to say. Cool. So so what else are you excited about with this release? So one thing that's uh, yep. piqued my interest quite a bit is the diagnostic reports and the integrated heap dumps. You know, as a developer, I constantly live in the debugger and trying to figure out what's going on. So... In particular, I'm looking at the ability to format your diagnostic summaries and stuff like that to sort of make it a little more readable. So can you talk about that? Sure. 
like you just said, there's a lot of diagnostic reports that we can now either trigger when certain events occur or that you you can generate from the command line. Depending on what issue you want to investigate, there's different flags and things that you can pass in through the command line terminal to tell it what you want Node to get out. Let me see if I can find some links to that. I agree, though. That's something that I'm really excited about. Yeah, so here's some some stuff directly from the Node website that it will deliver a JSON formatted diagnostic summary written to a file. You can see things like JavaScript and native stack traces, heap statistics, platform information, resource usage, et cetera. You can trigger them on things like unhandled exceptions, fatal errors, and user signals, in addition to triggering through API calls. So from the command line, you would use things like a flag that they've called uh, experimental report, and they have other ones that are report on caught exception. But basically, it will just format you out a really nice stack trace of all types of things. The JavaScript heap, so you'll see things like memory, total memory and used memory, as well as memory limit. You will see resource usage. You'll see, what else do we have? Environment variables that are there when when these issues are happening. Oh, okay. Here's all of the different ones. So we've got experimental report, which enables this feature. We've got report uncaught exception, which enables reports to be generated on uncaught exceptions which is useful for native stack and other runtime environment data. We have report on signal, which enables reports to be generated upon receiving the specified signal to the running node process. And then it can give you reports on fatal errors, the report directory, so the location the report will be generated to, the report file name, if you have a specific file that you want the report to be given for the naming conventions, and then a report signal which can set or reset the signal for report generation. So it's really attempting to make error logging and error handling much more convenient than it has been, you know, where we've previously relied on a lot of logs in terminals, a lot of error tracking software. I know some of which advertise for JavaScript Jabber. Node's trying to build in to help, help with that debugging process. So then the idea is maybe that uh, with the native stuff that's built into Node, you maybe won't need some of the external services. They're sort of trying to pick up the slack that the external services have been providing to this point. Is that right? It sounds like they're trying to, yeah, I wouldn't say that they're necessarily going to replace them because sometimes having a GUI or having, you know, a nice dashboard will still be extremely beneficial in identifying bugs and fixes. But being able to kind of deep dive into what was going on inside of your server or inside of the code when the error occurred, which is usually the hardest part, is figuring out exactly what happened that made it, you know, freak out in this way that you weren't expecting will help kind of demystify that, hopefully make recreation of the errors easier, and then the developers will hopefully be able to fix them faster and pinpoint the actual root cause in in a quicker way. Yeah, that's awesome. Any any uh, helping to clarify on errors is always a welcome welcome uh, tool for it for a dev. Oh, absolutely. So then you've also listed some I see some changes here to the HTTP parser. Yes, 
once again, we're increasing speed. <laughs> but yes, um, the current HTTP parser that Node has been using for probably since close to its inception has not been the easiest thing to maintain or to build upon in, past, in the past years. So there's a new up-and-comer called LLHTTP, which is a port of the original, but it's been ported over to TypeScript, and then it's parsed through a, another thing called LLParse, which will then generate the C or the bytecode. And it turns out that this, this transformation to LLHTTP is actually faster than the original parser by about 156%. It's actually written in less lines of code, and all the performance optimizations, which had to be uh, handwritten before, are actually now automatically generated in this version. It sounds like what you're saying is you go from TypeScript to WebAssembly JIT-style code. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. There, the LL parse is another module that will run all of the TypeScript of LLHTTP through it. And then that actually is what generates the, the C or the bit code. So C or bit code. I'm a little confused there. Because bit code meaning basically WebAssembly for the V8 compiler, C mm-hmm. would be very different. So what, how, why would it be one or the other? Is it something that happens because of a flag you pass to when you build? Or is it something that, how does that work? Well, from what I understood of reading the articles myself, I think you could choose which which thing you wanted it to be outputted to, depending on what your, you know, what your end goal was or where the end end place was that this was going to be running. Let me see. Yeah. So, according to the GitHub for LLHTTP, there's the library LLParse is used to generate the output C and or bitcode artifacts which could be compiled and linked with the embedders program like Node.js. Does that make more sense at all? To me, that sounds like this is not just intended for Node, but rather this is a parser that's written in TypeScript that can be exported for various projects and Node might be using either the C version or the bitcode version. Does that is that... Is, am I making correct connections? I think that you are, yeah. Yeah, it, I'm reading exactly from the LL Parse GitHub now, and it just describes itself as an API to compile into C output and or LLVM bit code. So I guess it can do both. That's cool. Yeah, that HTTP yeah. parser has a very rich history. If I'm not mistaken, <laughs> Ryan Dahl originally wrote it for Ruby, and then it came over to C, or not C, over to Node when he started Node, and then has, mm-hmm. has been very faithful since then. But I have also heard that um, if you can avoid the context switch out to C, you can get a lot of improvements in JavaScript. So at one point, Google was trying to get the DOM to be in JS, and it actually was mm-hmm. faster. But the problem was that then you'd have real JavaScript objects in the DOM. Like, for example, the node lists would have all the same properties as an array, and um, Mm -hmm. array.isArray would return true for a node list. And it turned (laughs) out that that, 
broke the web entirely. And so they abandoned the project, if I remember the story correctly. So yeah. counterintuitively, you think like, well, C is going to be faster. But if you can right. get the bit code and get it in the JIT engine, then it turns out that that's not always true, that JavaScript can be faster than C if you get it to JIT, which is just in time compiled for those of you that don't know what JIT is and are listening, hearing me say JIT over and over again. Meaning that it doesn't, it doesn't make decisions, a JIT compiler doesn't make decisions at compile time. Like when you write a C program, you have to say, I want to run these certain optimizations and those, that's it, it's done. But with JIT, where the code runs and the compiler analyzes the running code and then speeds it up even faster based on how the code is actually used at the time it's being used, rather than guessing at how the code might be used when it's compiled. So just a little background for anybody that didn't know that. That's really good to know. That's great. I think it's awesome. Yeah, I'm really excited. They've had it behind the experimental flag uh, in Node 11. So bringing it out to the forefront for Node 12 and just putting it out there for everybody to use is really going to put it to the test, and we'll see how well it can actually perform for everybody's different needs. This episode is sponsored by Sentry.io. Recently, I came across a great tool for tracking and monitoring problems in my apps. Then I asked them if they wanted to sponsor the show and allow me to share my experience with you. Sentry provides a terrific interface for keeping track of what's going on with my app. It also tracks releases so I can tell if what I deployed makes things better or worse. They give you full stack traces and as much information as possible about the situation when the error occurred to help you track down the errors. Plus, one thing I love, you can customize the context provided by Sentry. So... If you're looking for specific information about the request, you can provide it. It automatically scrubs passwords and secure information, and you can customize the scrubbing as well. Finally, it has a user feedback system built in that you can use to get information from your users. Oh, and I also love that they support open source to the point where they actually open source Sentry if you want to self-host it. Use the code devchat at sentry.io to get two months free on Sentry's small plan. That's code devchat at sentry.io. So there's something that was snuck in to Node 10. Like, first of all, I don't consider odd versions worth talking about because they're like the beta experimental versions. So technically, this mm-hmm. was actually implemented in Node 10. It's been there the whole time through Node 11. But I think, I mean, I could be wrong. But I think most people, most people play it safe and only go with even-numbered versions that have some sort of reliability and maintainability guarantee. So for many people that did not know that it was kind of sneaked in halfway through the 10 life cycle, to me, this is super exciting. Node 12 is the first legit maintained release, like long, or wait, is 12 long-term maintenance or no? It will be entering long-term maintenance in October, actually. It was just released in April of this year. Okay, yeah. So this, but this is like dependable, reliable, will be supported, will be maintained. So this is the first version that starts with ECC and RSA bindings to OpenSSL being exposed in Node. So you no longer have to shell out to the OpenSSL program to generate your uh, public-private key pairs. And there's a whole ton of projects around getting key pair encryption working in Node that or just had various, various problems with them. And now you don't need them. That's something I really think is cool about Node 12, even though technically it's been there in 11 the whole time and it was introduced 
midstream in 10 without much fanfare or announcement. It was more treated like a, a bug fix that the API didn't exist than a new feature. Did you know about very that? Cool. No, I didn't actually. So that's very cool to hear about. There was a library called URSA that a lot of people use that has since gone defunct because it just fell out, fell out of maintenance. And uh, mm-hmm. technically you could always generate elliptic curve keys in Node, but it was under an API that if you were looking for it, you wouldn't have found it. It was kind of happenstantial to the Diffie-Hellman exchange APIs. Anyway, that's probably a little bit too much in the weeds. I'm sorry, I'll shut up now. <laughs> no, I think it's super cool. I'm always interested to learn more about Node, you know, actual low-level node instead of just all the libraries that we run on top of it and the frameworks like Express and Koa. (laughs) Can you speak a little more about the uh, worker threads? I I see you wrote something down about that, and I'm just curious, like, first off, what exactly worker threads are for, and then if also you can speak to how they're relevant to this release. Yeah, that's a great uh, question, actually. Um, So worker threads have been around in Node for a while now. I believe that they were introduced in Node 10 as well. They were behind the experimental flag as well. So prior to Node 11.7, you had to use the experimental worker flag when you passed it in the command line, then a worker thread would run. And what worker threads are really beneficial for is CPU-intensive JavaScript operations. You know, Node is really good, actually, with its own asynchronous I.O. operations. But worker threads are there for some of those really, those things that just eat up all of your memory. They can help alleviate the load and let your program keep running pretty efficiently while doing their own operations on the sideline and then returning to the main thread once they've finished, you know, calculating data or crunching numbers or doing whatever it is that they're doing in their own little thread. I personally have not used them very much, so I can't speak to a lot of real-world use cases that I found for them. But I'd love to hear if if either of you, if any of you, have had the opportunity to really see what they're what they're made of. Sounds like that would be a nice feature for reading a you know two gigabyte CSV file. (laughs) You never know. (laughs) (laughs) I guess I personally haven't had enough experience or really looked into it enough to know how to operate worker threads in a way that makes sense or a way that makes them really efficient. But I agree, it it could be great for for parsing really large data sets like that. Mm -hmm. Anyone else have experience Um, with the worker threads? Nope, not here. (laughs) I don't remember who gave this talk, but one of the local meetups a couple years ago, somebody gave a talk, I think it was on Papa Parse, which this one is in browser. I don't know if this works in Node or not. I would think it probably does, but I am not certain. But yeah, it is specifically for the case of the two gigabyte CSV, uh, as as was mentioned, and it, it does some... I don't remember exactly how it uses the worker threads. I just remember that it does some tricksy stuff in the background, which makes sense. Like CSV is something that you can do line by line parsing. So you can chunk out like a few megabytes at a time. And when Mm -hmm. JavaScript is using the main thread, that's like, you killed it. Like there's, there's nothing else that can go on. So if you have (laughs) something that you have to parse, 
And you can just make a copy operation that's a low-cost copy operation to the worker thread. And then when you've got the results, do a low-cost copy operation back, then you're doing pretty well. The one caveat to that is that JSON stringify and JSON parse are really, really expensive. Like we don't notice it for little tiny objects, but you start to go in things that are multiple tens of kilobytes or into megabytes. And um, a lot of times the way you want to communicate between a worker thread is you want to send JavaScript back and forth or JSON back and forth because that's so nice. But if you start Mm -hmm. to scale the size of the JSON object you're sending back, then you actually end up in the same problem where the JSON parser ends up doing all the work in the main thread. So a little caveat to be aware of there. Very good to know. Let's see. Another thing that's pretty cool about Node 12 is that native module creation and support is getting easier for Node.js. So if you are a developer who is building modules for the Node ecosystem, uh, I guess any of the NPM packages, things like that, there is a new API release that they've just come out with for the NAPI. It's going to be version 4, and it makes creation and then support for all of the different binaries that a node developer could want to support um, much easier. So in the past, they had to keep track, really, of which distributed binaries they were supporting, and they wanted their modules to be able to support. And with this new release of the the NAPI, it largely abstracts that away. So it gets much closer to a developer who is maintaining more of a pure JavaScript module there's a lot less uh, setup and then configuration overhead for the developers to keep track of. Okay, say that one more time. The, a pure JavaScript module is optimized with the developer experience, how? Well, there's less in terms of the developers having to keep track of which binaries they support. You know, it's the V8 engine, and as long as the V8 engine can parse whatever kind of JavaScript code they're running, it should probably just be good. But with the different versions of Node, some of them either cannot run or do not support particular Node modules. You know, you'll get. Are you referring to the native C++ Node modules that are compiled to binaries? Yes. Okay. So the 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 N API. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So the N API basically takes care of the compiling down and the, you know, I guess different versions, making those node modules compatible with the different versions of node that are running out there. So is the NAPI for building a C++ module or is it is it just for building a JavaScript module? I believe that it is for building JavaScript modules. Let me see. I believe that NAPI refers to C++ modules that are pre-compiled for Node or compiled at install time. And the NAPI provides a way that it's it's easier to not... So if you've ever worked with Node on Windows, you go NPM install some thing, enough times, different things, you're going to get these error printout saying could not compile. And a lot of times it's an optional dependency where there's a pure JavaScript implementation and then there's the C++ implementation that's 
faster or more optimized. And when you install it on Windows, it just fails because you don't have the Visual Studio compiler installed. Whereas on like Mac or Linux, you probably just happen to have the GCC compiler already installed. And so Mm -hmm. before, most things had to install on your computer or the author had to do a complicated build step and make sure that they published 15 different binaries for all their supported versions of Node within API. They write the C++ code and it probably is insignificantly slower from the sense that there's some sort of wrapper layer or maybe that gets abstracted away with macros at compile time or something. There's a layer so that the binary they produce, they can compile and publish once and the tool chain becomes simpler so they don't have to do 17 different compiles to support several different versions of Node. They could just kind of compile once for Windows, once for Linux, once for Linux on ARM, once for Mac, and be done with it. And the NPM tooling is enhanced so that it supports pre-publishing the binaries as part of the NPM process so that when I go to NPM install on Windows or on Mac or on Linux, I don't get an error saying, oh, we couldn't find your C compiler or you didn't have the right dependencies for this. So just failing and and using the native or not native, the, the pure JavaScript implementation instead, it's saying we're going to use, we're, we're going to go download this pre-built thing. So those are, different pieces of an API. The the API with the C++ wrapper is one piece. The build step support that's integrated into NPM to make the compiling simpler is another piece. And then the pre-publishing the binary is another piece. But with it all together, it means I write some C++ that compiles down to a node binary. I publish the binaries to NPM, other people can download those binaries and between whatever point release is supported as part of NPI, in, a, in API, that one binary will work for many customers on many versions of Node. Thank you for that incredibly detailed <laughs> breakdown of how an API works. That was much better than I ever could have explained it and you know much more about it than I do. <laughs> This has been a problem for me personally because I've tried to go the route of having compiled modules. Like the biggest example of this in the Node ecosystem that everyone deals with, well, not everyone, but that many people deal with is SQLite. SQLite is probably the most popular, not, you know, it's it's written in C. It's not written in JavaScript. And then Mm -hmm. the URSA that I mentioned earlier that wouldn't have become obsolete. Well, it would have become obsolete because Node advanced and provided what it did, but the maintainer constantly had to recompile, 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 and like change APIs, and there was just so much fatigue over it that eventually it switched hands once, it switched hands twice, and then it just stopped being maintained because it was such a burden to fix the changes in it. So although I'm when I say me personally, I don't mean that like, I was part of one of those processes, but I've had to deal with the effects of and had to try to figure out how to work around these problems. So when I heard about an API, I don't really know that much about it, 
But uh, my understanding is that those are the problems that it's meant to solve to make it easier for people to, to not have to have so much tooling to take the benefit of something like SQLite or Level DB or one of these other uh, embedded uh, either databases or optimizers that are written in, in C. Cool. Great example. And actually, that, those problems that you were speaking of and the tool chain is a great segue into one of the last things that I have to talk about with Node, which is that there are some new compiler and uh, minimum platform standards. So if you're on Mac OS, if you're on Windows, you're probably going to be fine. There, the GCC that's now required is a minimum of six. And then there's a glibc, which is 2.17 on platforms besides Mac and Windows. So for, I guess, all Linux platforms. Mac users need at least Xcode 8 and Mac OS 10.10, which is Yosemite. So hopefully most of our developers will be far past that at this point. And then Windows, if you've been running any of the Node 11 builds, you'll already be up to speed. Those are... Those are just the same uh, for Node 11 as for Node 12. For Linux, uh, the binaries that they're supporting are Enterprise Linux 7, Debian 8, and Ubuntu 14.04. And then if you have different requirements, you can always go to you know, the Node website and find more about what exactly you need to install or compile to be able to run the, the latest versions of Node. Uh, somewhat tangential, do you know anything about Chakra Core? Is that project still active? Is that is that still something that is going to provide some coolness in the future? Is that kind of dying out? I am not familiar with it, actually. Could you fill me in on what you know so far about it? So Chakra Core was a project to... I mean, Mozilla tried to do something similar with, like, Jaeger Monkey or Jaeger Node, and then Microsoft took their their thing. So V8 is Google, Chakra is Microsoft. And okay. so Microsoft was supporting getting Node to run on the Chakra engine. But then Microsoft also just announced that Internet Explorer is switching over to V8. From an academic perspective, way awesome. There were some practical improvements that I thought Chakra was possibly going to add to Node to you know, possibly give better performance than V8. But then with Microsoft moving from Chakra to V8, and V8, I think, has kind of adopted some of the improvements that Microsoft had researched and proved to be effective. So I'm I'm curious if that project is going to continue or if there's new stuff that's going to come out of it. But I am... I guess not worried isn't quite the right word, maybe sad that I'm I'm thinking it might just end up dying out because everybody's just going to use V8 now, probably. You're probably right. Uh, I didn't come across anything related specifically to Chakra Core when I was doing research on these new improvements to Node. So from what I can gather, it seems like Node is is leveraging V8 pretty heavily and is going to continue to, to do that instead. I just noticed on the download page, it's still listed down at the bottom. <laughs> so that's why I was curious. <laughs> so anything else to add before we go to picks? No. Um, 
like I said, I'm really excited about these new changes that are coming to Node, and I think it's going to be some really great improvements for everybody who's developing with it. So hopefully, hopefully they'll keep turning out great features and and great improvements. Yeah, and thanks for coming on and kind of filling us in on this. Absolutely, yes. I'm really happy to. This has been exciting stuff to learn about. Glad to cool. to be a part of the conversation. One of the things that I find that we talk a lot about at the different conferences and the different things that I'm working on is open source software. And a lot of people have a lot of ideas around open source software, but we don't often think about the people who are building it and trying to maintain it. I had a friend, John, who came to me. He's been a guest on JavaScript Jabber a couple of times. He came and he actually said, hey, Chuck, I wish there was a show about sustaining open source. That really hit me where I live. And I have a few other friends who are working on projects related to this. So we all got together and we put together a show called Sustain Our Software. You can find it at sustainoursoftwarepodcast.com. It's a place where several people who are passionate about open source come together and have conversations about how it can be sustained and how it can be maintained and what we can do to help these maintainers continue to deliver us value that we build our software on. Most of the software we're building is based on open source. And so it's important to us to have that maintained and have it taken care of. Come check it out. It's been really interesting to listen to the conversations that they're having from people who are working in it all the time and just hear what they have to say about it. Once again, that's at sustainoursoftwarepodcast.com. Cool. So um, we can go to picks. I can go first. So I have a few picks today. First off, the um, AWS Amplify framework. If you are not familiar with it, it's been around for a while, uh, but I've really been digging into it lately. I'm doing a um, kind of a consulting gig on it right now and um, kind of been learning a lot about Amplify and then just in a broader context, serverless, all that stuff. And it's really, really cool. And um, at minimum, it's kind of magical. Like you can have authentication with a GraphQL database like set up in 10 minutes. They even give you like React components that work out of the box for like Authflow, like login, uh, sign up, uh, forgot password, all that stuff. You get, you know, email sign uh, sign up or social sign up, things like that. It's really, really impressive, and it's all just from a really nice CLI. So uh, definitely check that out. Next up is a book. I'm a really slow reader. I've been working on a book for about two months, uh, just a little at a time. But uh, it's a book by uh, a guy named Jordan Peterson. He has a book called 12 Rules for Life and Antidote to Chaos. And it's just been a really good book to read uh, in terms of just like facing adversity and uh, kind of bringing order to your life. And lastly, I'm going to kind of shamelessly pick uh, an upcoming workshop I'm going to be doing. Uh, I've got two workshops on React and Gatsby I'm going to be doing in San Diego at the beginning of November. So check, keep an eye out on my Twitter if, uh, if you're interested in maybe attending one of those. Cool. I'll go next. I only have one today, but uh, I think it's pretty monumental in the world of cartoons. Yesterday, I saw a few articles about the far side possibly coming back. So the far side, um, Gary Larson, he quit drawing it quite a number of years ago, and he actually didn't allow people to distribute his uh, cartoons on the web. And so the only way you can really see those is if you have the books. But the far side website uh, had a message yesterday about the far side possibly coming back. So people are trying to figure out what that means, if he's going to be drawing new cartoons or just he's going to have an online presence for all of his many previous cartoons. So uh, as someone who was a huge fan of that, 
uh, cartoon. I'm really looking forward to see what comes out of that or what its reincarnation looks like, shall we say. That's awesome. That's very cool. I have a couple picks that should probably be pretty popular. Neither one of them is very developer-focused, but the first one that I'd like to plug is the espresso maker that I have at home. It's called the DeLonghi Magnifica XS, and it's an automatic espresso and cappuccino maker, and it is amazing. It's like you just need whole beans, and you put it in the top, and you press a button, and you've got some of the best coffee you will ever have. So I would highly recommend it. It's a little bit of an investment, but it's been such a great find for my husband and I and pretty much everybody who comes to stay with us at one time or another. And the other thing that I would love to plug is that I will be speaking at Connect Tech, which is happening in Atlanta in the middle of October. I'll be talking about responsive web design and specifically how to do responsive with React.js. So it would be awesome if anybody's coming to attend to come out and see me speak there. Yeah, I'm looking forward to meeting you, Paige. Absolutely. Yeah, it'll be great. AJ, you have some picks for us? Oh, yeah, I'll go, I'll go. So first of all, I'm going to pick um, Paige coming on the show today because as much as it hurts my heart, I think she's kind of shown that the nail is in the coffin on JavaScript and that um, ECMAScript is going to be something I have to start using because otherwise all my common JS modules might stop working. And so as much as it hurts, I think my resistance might be, I I can't bring the words out of my mouth. I can't say it, but we know what I'm thinking in my head. And and that's largely thanks to Paige. Um, (laughs) But I'm not, not ready to talk about it yet. Other than that I am. I'm also going to pick, Field of Hopes and Strings. So this is, uh, I don't even know what genre it would be, but of course it is game-inspired music because that's what I pick every week. So check that out on, on Bandcamp. It's, it's, um, it doesn't, I, to me, it doesn't sound like game music other than it's got some, you know, a couple of game music motif type things, but it's, you know, it's, it's one of those good, spans the spectrum between some, some stuff that's more classical-ish, but definitely still electronic-ish, sprinkled and whatever. I'm also going to pick Link's Awakening, which is kind of a weird pick because I, I don't get it until the end of the week, but I'm assuming that I'm going to love it. I played the original black and white version on the Game Boy, and I own the color version, but I haven't actually played more than like two or three of the dungeons uh, up to that point before I had something else come up that had to drop it. But... I know that my wife is going to like watching me play this. So that's going to give me, and, and I get to play it on the TV rather than having to play it on a handheld. So I'm super excited about the Link's Awakening. And I expect to report that I love it, that I agree with the changes that they made, whatever they are, and that they kept the source material very well. I'm also going to pick Dune. Now, if you haven't read Dune, plug your ears for a second, because I'm going to give away a couple of spoilers, but it's okay. Everybody dies. It's just, it's so frustrating because I, I get like a third way into the book and I'm thinking, okay, cool. I'm interested to see how this book is going. Like things are developing well. I'm getting attached to the characters. They're all dead. They're all dead. They're all dead. <laughs> and then the next two thirds of the book, well, it's almost like a completely different book. I mean, the end of book one 
because the book in of itself has book one, book two, book three as like the section labels, even though it's a trilogy and there are literally three books. So that's a little confusing, but inside of the first book of Dune, the sections are labeled book one, book two, book three. And any, anyway, so that was, that was a little bit frustrating for me because I started to, I, I thought that the story was going to go in a direction and obviously it wasn't because everyone's dead. That aside, I think it still is a very interesting book, and it's one of those pieces of literature that if you're into literature, you should probably be familiar with, because it, in the same way that Star Wars changed every movie that was ever made after it because of the way it broke the way that cinema worked, like, for example, having the credits at the end, Star Wars was the first movie to do that, and they had to pay like Actors Guild fines in order to do it. Dune breaks new ground in literature for its time period. And you can see that Star Wars was heavily influenced by Dune as you get through the book. The whole Jedi stuff is the Bene Gesserits. It's very, very similar. And I don't think that, you know, good artists copy, great artists steal. And, you know, George Lucas mm-hmm. stole the idea to the point of making it his own completely separate thing. So I, I think that that's great. Also, just like Star Wars... Because it was the first of its kind, it's the worst of its kind. And I'm waiting for the hate emails to come in on that. But Dune is a terrible book, but it broke new ground and it paved the way for the sci-fi genre to just explode in in new directions. And you can see that the kind of the influences off of it. It doesn't feel typically typically sci-fi. I love Star Wars, but you got to be honest. Like, they invented... 70% of the technology in order to create the movie, every movie that came after was better, technically speaking, because it just, like, it was iteration two. It was generation two of the technology. Like, Jurassic Park is just way better than Star Wars. End of story. I'm sorry. That's the way that it is. But the technology was better. It was refined. It was perfected. Well, it was also put out there because George Lucas basically gave away a lot of that uh, technology. He just said, here, you guys can use it. He didn't license it and make people pay for it. And that's what's credited with a lot of the sci-fi explosion is that he he invented all this technology and then just gave it to everybody and said, hey, go ahead and use it. When was the last time you watched a movie that didn't say Lucasfilm and uh, Skywalker Light and Magic and Skywalker Sound at the end of the credits, though? That's just what I was thinking. They're involved in everything nowadays. Pixar, Disney, uh, Marvel, like, I don't know the last time I saw a movie that has, like, unless it's a pure drama, any movie that has special effects at the end of the credits, Lucasfilm, Skywalker, Sound, Skywalker, Industrial Light and Magic, like, there's like five or six Lucasfilm companies, well, at least three, I don't know if it's five, (laughs) end of all the credits. (laughs) So, AJ, uh, here's a couple things about Dune. One, thanks for the spoiler, because I know that book just came out, and so I haven't had a chance to read it yet. Um, Second, do you know what the inspiration for Dune was? Um, I do not. I think it was weed, because the dude is obviously stoned. No, actually, um, it's a place down on the southern coast of Oregon, which is where I'm from, called the Oregon Dunes. So... Back in 1957, Frank Herbert came down because he'd read an article about how people were trying to plant some grass to keep the dunes from shifting all over the place. And that's what sort of kicked off his imagination. And he started writing uh, dunes once he saw that. Well, that is pretty cool. 
That is cool. Paige, if anyone wants to connect with you online, where's the best place to do that? Well, I'm on Twitter at pneedry, P-N-I-E-D-R-I. And I also write regularly on Medium. So you can find me there at page N11. Cool. Yeah, we'll put links to all this in the show notes as well. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on and chatting with us today. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. This has been really fun. Yeah. Yeah, likewise. Cool. All right. Well, uh, we'll see everyone later. Bye. All right. See ya. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.